Always tries to make me look good, even when I make a mistake. Especially when I make a mistake. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 7. John's gospel is unlike the other gospels. Uh, The others are sometimes called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic uh, comes from a a Greek word that means able to be seen together. Um, They all work, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all work in harmony with each other. And they tell many of the same stories and, and many of the same accounts of the life of Christ. But John is different. He writes from a different point of view. Um, John wants his readers to wrestle with the claims that Jesus makes and to come to their own conclusion as to the truth of, of who Jesus is. Of course, the other three really kind of want to do the same thing. But in each of their cases, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're all writing essentially an historical account, a history of Jesus. So Luke, for example, especially seems to be writing a a legal defense. Mark is probably the first gospel written, I believe. And he wrote so as to get the good news out there quickly. A couple of years ago, as we worked through Mark's gospel, especially early on, the word immediately comes up time after time after time. Immediately, Jesus did this. Immediately, Jesus did that. He's trying to get the gospel out there quickly, especially as the gospel spread to the ends of the earth to the Gentiles. Matthew wrote a a more in-depth account uh, than Mark did. But his focus was primarily for the Jewish people, for them to see Jesus as a a better Moses, as the the coming Son of Man from the book of Daniel, as the the longed-for Christ, the Messiah of the Jews. But John wrote, he says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so John didn't quite tell at least quite as many stories as the others. He didn't didn't focus so much on what Jesus did as he did on what Jesus said. And when Jesus speaks in John's gospel, it's often incredibly significant. Not that it isn't significant in all of the gospels, obviously, but especially here in John's gospel. And when Jesus speaks... Very often, John records the the response of those who heard him speak. Today's passage is no different. I want to read John 7, beginning in verse 37, through the end of the chapter. And then we're going to focus on the response to Jesus' invitation, starting in verse 40. And you can see in your bulletin, I intended to get through verse 52 when I put the bulletin together. And that ain't happening. We'll come back to it next week. So John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37, says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to, him, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray together. Lord, as we open your word today, um, I pray that you would give us what we need. Give us ears to hear. Help us to understand these things. That we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus speaks, the most frequent response is division. Christ brings division. He even said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, He said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. But it's Christmas. What about when Linus quotes from Luke 2 every year? We, we know, you know what I'm talking about. You see it on TV every year. When Linus stands there with his blanket and quotes from the King James Version of the Bible, which says this, and listen very carefully, this is from Luke chapter 2, and the angel said unto them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good, news, or good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Good tidings of great joy, Luke writes, which shall be to all people. Well, we understand as Christians... This is not a passage about universalism. It's not a, a passage that proclaims that all sin and death, all wars and rumors of wars have been done away with at that point in time. It's a passage that is going to be true when Christ returns and finishes once for all what He has started that first Christmas. We can proclaim with the angels glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men because Christ will accomplish this. It will be true. One day we will experience that. In fact, we have started to experience that in our own salvation. Peace. We will be able to confidently sing one day joy to the world. The Lord has come. 
Let earth receive her king. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. But until Christ returns, he continues to divide. He continues to to wield his sword, as he says. In chapter 6 of John, we saw, especially throughout the kind of the last two-thirds of the chapter, we saw that the people rejected Jesus really over his failure to perform signs and wonders. Of course, it, it wasn't a failure. It really was a refusal on his part. See, the signs that he did, uh, the, the miracles that he performed, like the, like the feeding of the 5,000, they were done to, to validate his message to prove to them that he was truly from above and that his message was actually worth listening to. Who else could do these things? Who is this man? He must be someone special. Let's find out. And now it was time to listen to his message here. But they wanted none of that. Throughout the rest of chapter 6, they just wanted more bread. But then throughout chapter 7, we're finishing up this week and next, there's division over not his signs, but his words. His own family doesn't believe in him in the first uh, few verses of the chapter. Some in Jerusalem say that he's just a good man, and others believe that he's leading people astray. The Jewish leadership They can't understand how a man who never studied in their rabbinical schools could have such learning as Jesus does. Remember this? They have these arguments throughout the chapter. And if you read through John 7, if you read through it again, you're going to see conflict, controversy, confusion. You're going to see division. And virtually every response to the things that Jesus has been saying throughout the chapter. But then at the end of the chapter, there's actually a tendency of of some of the people who've just heard his invitation there in verses 37 and 38. They've just heard that. And and there's there's a tendency to accept him on account of his words. Yet they end up rejecting him because of where he's from. Because he's from Galilee. Again, he said in Matthew chapter 10, he said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For, for I have come to set man against his father. A daughter against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Whoever receives you, he says, receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus is the great divider of men. Jesus is the great, think about it, Jesus is the great divider of families. Jesus is the great divider of churches. Jesus is the great divider of children and parents, of father and son, mother and daughter. We need to remember that today's passage is in direct response to Jesus' gospel invitation in verses 37 and 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is the good news. This is the good news kind of in in concentrated form. And it brought division among those who are gathered there in Jerusalem for this annual Feast of the Booths. In fact, there are three categories of people in these verses, verses 40 to 52. I want to be very careful about allegorizing this, but I think there are some important lessons for us to learn, even as we look at these three categories. And we're only going to get to the first category today, but let me give them to you. The first category is the people. These are the the lay people. These are those who are religious. They're in Jerusalem for the feast, but they're not in religious leadership. So to use a modern kind of Christianized term, these are normal churchgoers. These are people like you. They're they're normal religious people who are there for for the festival, for the feast. And we'll see as we work through this that they're divided amongst themselves. The people are divided with each other. The second category are the officers, or I believe some versions call them the temple guard, which is... Probably not the best translation, but it's a good description of of who they are and what their task is. And the officers here, they find themselves uh, standing in division with the chief priests and the Pharisees. They're divided from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They're really their commanders. This is a group to watch the reaction of. We will get to this next week. But even as you just glance at this, in their role as temple guards... They've seen and they've heard all kinds of rabbis. They've heard all kinds of different teachings. They've heard it all. These are experienced police officers too. We'll come back to them next week. And then the third group, which is actually the angriest group of people, the third group are the religious leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they are divided among, from everyone. The people the guards, and themselves. They're divided with everyone. Well, verse 40 begins with a statement, when they heard these words. As I said, this, this passage, beginning here in verse 40, is a direct result of the words that Jesus spoke in 37 and 38. So his invitation to, to come and drink When they heard those words, it it struck a chord with thirsty people who were there in Jerusalem watching this this kind of water-pouring, drink-offering part of the festival that we talked about last week. It's, It's safe to say, and should be clear from a plain reading of the New Testament, that most of the Jewish people, no matter which category they fell into, 
Most of the Jewish people really were waiting for the Lord to deliver them from their Roman oppressors. Now, now there were some, like the tax collectors, for example, and even to a lesser extent the Pharisees, or even some of the Pharisees at least. There were some who had made peace with the Romans, and, and some, especially the tax collectors, were actually profiting off the arrangement that they had with the Romans. But for the most part, the Jewish people were still desiring for the Lord to save them, to deliver them from the Romans, from their oppression. They viewed themselves at this point in time as slaves again. They wanted to be set free. And Jesus shows up. And in His words and in His actions, He he seems to be reminding them of Moses. Especially when He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I could only think of the people of Israel in the desert when Moses provided water for them. They could only think of the people of Israel in the desert when manna from heaven, bread from heaven came for them. It seems like every person who heard these words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's like everybody who heard these words, these words tugged at their deepest longings that they faced. Many people have tried to identify the deepest longings of the human heart. Love, greatness, meaning, power, intimacy. John Piper put it this way, he says, The deepest longing of the human heart is to know and enjoy the glory of God. We were made for this. Okay. But the problem is, is that our hearts are steeped in sin. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? These people, all people, are steeped in sin and shame. We are bent on destruction. The deepest longings of our hearts are going to be deceitful and desperately sick, even when we come as close as these people do to Jesus. Now, I could take just a, a little sidebar for a moment. This is why the, the, the seeker-sensitive church won't work, can't work. And I don't say this from a sense of moral or theological superiority. I was a pastor in a seeker-sensitive church for a few years. Our deepest longings, what, what we seek after, is not God. What we seek after as fallen, sinful humans is not God. It may be spirituality. It may be something higher than ourselves, but it's not God. The results of trying to tailor... This is just a sidebar. But the results of trying to, trying to tailor church services for those who are looking to have their deepest longings met will be just what we see here in this passage. It will be division and discord. I say that from experience and seeing it here in Scripture. And besides, the church by definition is exclusive from any who claim to be merely a seeker of God. The church is the assembly of the saints whose purpose is to glorify God and worship. 
But for Christians, our deepest longings are being, being conformed to the image of Christ. Our deepest longings, our longings themselves as Christians, are being conformed to the image of Christ. And as a result, just listen to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 verses 3 to 7 says this, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. And He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Delight yourself in the Lord, the psalmist says, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. Be conformed to the image of Christ. And the desires of your heart will be given to you. And there in Psalm 37, the scripture tells us that those desires will be righteousness, justice, and stillness or peace. Righteousness, justice, and peace. These things are at odds with what we see here in, in, in these verses in John chapter 7. Righteousness, justice, and peace. There is none of that in these people. Look again. Let me read just 40 to 44 again. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So of this entire crowd who heard his words, some of the people, these are of the lay people, not the professional clergy, they divided over who Jesus really is. And I should point out right here, this is the only group of people between the, the people, the lay people, and the soldiers, the, the officers, and the Pharisees and chief priests. Of those three groups of people, it's only the lay people who actually backed up their conclusions about Jesus with Scripture. And that's important, and we're going to kind of circle back to that. But it's only them who back up their conclusions about Jesus with Scripture. So there's actually three groups of lay people uh, in this group, or we could say uh, these people have three different conclusions. And the first conclusion is this. This really is the prophet. This really is the prophet. Now, we've mentioned the prophet before. Uh, Jesus was accused of being the prophet back in chapter 6, verse 14. And John the Baptist was questioned back in chapter 1, verse 21, Are you the prophet? To which he answered, No. And so these people have in mind a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And he goes on to explain him just a little bit more in the next verses. And so they have in mind a national leader who will, who will, like Moses, boldly march into Caesar's court and proclaim, let my people go. 
They have in mind someone who will lead, lead God's people to freedom from oppression, freedom from slavery. And remember, he's been talking about being living water, about being the bread of life back in chapter 6. So to them, this guy sure sounds like Moses. He sure sounds like he fits that prophecy from Deuteronomy chapter 18. But to them, the prophet was not the Christ. These must be two separate people. See, for example, Moses was not the priest. Aaron was the priest, his brother. And the prophet that they were waiting for could not possibly function as both prophet and priest. And even more specifically, there is no way that he could function as prophet, priest, and king. That's out of the realm of thinking. And so there's a division here with the other group who said this, this is the Christ. And the word Christ... Hang on to that thought, by the way, prophet, priest, and king. The word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. And there was something about Jesus' words that caused this next group to argue that he was not the great prophet from Deuteronomy, but that he was, in fact, the Messiah. Now, in the Old Testament, the word Messiah is actually almost always translated into English as anointed one. Anointed one. We see this, for example, in in Psalm chapter 2. This is probably where it is most explicit, um, where it is very clearly the Messiah. So turn over to Psalm chapter 2. Look for the Messiah, look for the Christ or the anointed one here in these words. I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. But David wrote that for his, um, when he became king as a song to be sung when he was made king. But Jesus is a better king. He's a better anointed one. He's a better Messiah. 
So the clear indication from Psalm chapter 2 is kingly. It's kingly. This new anointed one will be like a new David, one that will inherit David's throne even. Certainly this Jesus must be the anointed one. He must be the Messiah. He must be the Christ. He must be more than merely the prophet. And remember, this argument here, this is the Christ, it's set over and against the argument that this is the prophet. They're saying, no, he's not the prophet. He's the Christ. And I want to remind you, people seem to be here, these people, they seem to be evaluating what Jesus has said on the basis of their understanding of Scripture. Think back to... Let me give you another example. In, in Isaiah chapter 61, think of the work of the anointed one. L- listen to this. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening, opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And they said, this really is the prophet. No, this really is the Christ. These two groups are are so close to the truth. They're so close to coming to a knowledge of who Jesus is. Yet, they're so far away. They're so far away. And we can see this when this third group speaks up and and also appeals to Scripture. Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Look at this. They are even rightly appealing to Scripture. They should appeal to Scripture here, to the authority of Scripture. They're so close. But then they jump to the conclusion that since Jesus is from Galilee, he didn't fit the qualifications for the Christ, for the Messiah. And they saw, they even give two qualifications there. Two scriptural qualifications that that, that they point to here that they think he fails to meet. First is that he is to be of the offspring of David. They get this from many places. Um, Here's just a couple. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4 says this, You have said, I have made my covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. The Messiah, the Christ, was to come from the line of David to be a king as David was. Or since it's that time of year, how about Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's to come from David's line and sit on David's throne. Who's this guy? And then secondly, they say that he must be born or must be from Bethlehem. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. That's Micah 5 too. Oh, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. See, these were scriptural proofs, and, and they were right. These things must be true of Jesus, of the Christ. They must be true of the Christ. The irony is really thick here in John's writing. The irony is really thick. They reject him because they thought that they knew the truth of his origins, but they never investigated further. They never went beyond this. They just said, no, can't be him. Hey, you know what they should have done? Hey, Jesus, where were you born? When they saw the miracles that he did, they should have said, this guy is something special. When they heard the words that he said, they should have said, this guy really is something special. Let's see if he lines up with Scripture, with the prophecies concerning the Christ. Where were you born? You sure sound like the Christ, but it says in the Scripture that the Christ will come from Bethlehem. Just kind of another thought. I have to believe that at, I don't know, 32 or 33 years old, Jesus is not the oldest person in Jerusalem at this time. Um, There must have been some people there who also had been affected by Caesar's taxation decree from a few decades earlier, where they had to go back to the town of their ancestry to register, as Joseph and Mary did. But for some reason, either they chose not to remember that, they chose not to investigate, or their foolish minds were darkened. The irony in all of this is in the angel's pronouncement in Luke chapter 2. Just listen to verses 8 to 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. They missed all of this. They were so close to Jesus. Regardless of which group, the people here, which regardless of which group they fell into, they were divided. 
So there was a division among the people over him, verse 43 says. In verse 44, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. One group said he's a prophet. Another group said, I think he might be the Christ. A third group seemed to say, no, the Christ comes from a different place. Let's arrest him. This moment in history right here in these verses is incredibly sad. Jesus himself cried in in Matthew chapter 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These were the people that Jesus had said were like sheep without a shepherd. They were so close to him. They almost had it. But they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mark chapter 6, verse 30 to 34. The apostles returned to Jesus and, and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many are coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And he went ashore and saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The people of Jerusalem were like sheep without a shepherd. These people, these people here in verses 40 to 44, they needed shepherds. They needed under-shepherds. They needed pastor-teachers to to shepherd them, to proclaim the truth to them. Let's make a mental jump here. We could could stop in Ephesians chapter 4 on that jump, where Paul says that Jesus gave the church shepherd-teachers to equip the saints. But jump right to what Paul says to Pastor Titus. So mentally, jump to, jump to Titus when he says in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, Pastor Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine, the truth of the Bible. I cannot stress how important this is. These people here, in John chapter 7, verses 40 to 44, they were so close to Jesus and they missed him. They read their Bibles. They knew at least some scripture. They were good at apologetics. They they followed the worship calendar. They showed up at the right times in the right places with the right offerings. And instead of experiencing righteousness and justice and peace, all they saw was division and discord. This is so many, so many churchgoers today. You say, I'll just stay at home and read my Bible. We'll do church at home again this week. I don't, I don't need to assemble with the saints. 
Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says this. Speaking of all of Christ's work, his sacrifice on the cross, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And a couple of chapters later, in Hebrews chapter 13, the preacher of Hebrews, the author of this book, goes on and he says this. He says in verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, those who taught you God's word. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Diverse and strange teachings. Uh, He's just a prophet. Maybe he's the prophet. No, he can't be the Christ. He's not from the right town. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And then a couple of verses later, near the end of the book, he goes on to say this. Verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 13, he says, For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, that is Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That that are those who taught you God's word. From verse 7, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Then he says, pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. There's a fearful expectation of judgment for those who miss Christ, those who come this close and miss him. Those who stand so very close to him yet do not behold him. The guys in the rest of this chapter in John chapter 7 which we'll have to get to next week 
They were supposed to be teaching the people. They were supposed to be saying, let's look at the scriptures and see if this guy is the Christ. Let's see if he's the prophet. Maybe he's both. He is. Maybe he's the prophet, a priest, and a king. Maybe he's the son of God. They were supposed to be teaching the people. They were supposed to be teaching the word of God to the people. They were supposed to be following, for example, the, the example of, of Ezra and the priests in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, which says they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense. They explained it so that the people understood the reading. That's what they were supposed to be doing. Instead, they're just divided among themselves and the people stand there so far away from Jesus. I said at the beginning that Jesus is the great divider. He's divided some of our families. You know that as well as I do. He's divided some of our homes. I have a mom that's not a believer. A stepdad that denies Christ. I love them. But we're divided. Many of you are in the same situation, or real similar. But Jesus can be the uniter, bringing righteousness and justice and peace, as Psalm 37 says. Pray. Pray that he would unite your families in Christ. Unite your home in Christ. And pray for your leaders, those who teach you God's word. That we would teach you God's word and not bring you just close enough to Jesus. But that we would be pointing at Jesus and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Lord, when I see this discord and the response to Jesus' clear invitation that if we thirst, we should come to, to Christ and drink. When we see the response of arguing and conflict and And I look at our church, Lord. We see a family that loves one another. It stands united on your word. And we praise God. Lord, it is my prayer that we would continue to be united, not just for the sake of unity, not just for the sake of going along to get along, but that we would be united in Christ that we would stand firm. And I often pray that if we would to stop preaching the truth of your word from this pulpit, that you would, as Revelation says, that you would remove the lampstand, that the glory would depart, that you would just shut this church down if we're going to pretend. Lord, we don't say those things lightly. It's very heavy. And so, Lord, it is my prayer that we would glorify you in all that we say and do as we seek your word, as we seek Christ, as we run after him, 
as we are conformed to his image. Oh God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have spoken to us. I thank you that the word has become flesh and dwelt among men. We thank you for Christ, so great a salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.